Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This week I was sleeping and our dog likes to get me up at like two o'clock in the morning to go outside. And again, it raises the question, who owns who, right? She gets me up and she wants to go outside and do her thing. And it shocks me as I let her out into the backyard. It's so bright. It's two or three o'clock in the morning and there is a shadow cast from the brightness of the light of the moon. I mean, I don't know if you saw it this week, but the moon was just like a flashlight up in the heavens. And it occurred to me at that point that what really is happening is you have a sun somewhere else in the universe that is shining its light, the fullness of its light at this moon, and then the moon is reflecting this light so that there is enough light in the middle of the night to cast a shadow on the ground. It occurred to me in that moment that that's exactly what we want to accomplish this morning. We want to look beyond the, the resonance or the, the illumination of the moon, and we want to see the sun. We want to see the S-O-N sun. We want to see the Christ. We want to look beyond kind of the uh, temporary things of this world, and we want to look beyond the reflections of Jesus and see the true fullness of Jesus Christ. So you and I might discover ourselves to be like the moon as well. We are those who reflect the beauty and the brilliance of the light of Jesus Christ to others. And we cast a shadow, as it were, on this light from the beauty of Jesus, not because we ourselves are anything illuminating, but because Christ is shining through us and on us. See, Christian, this morning you were called to be witness to the glories of Jesus Christ been pressing into that theme recently. Ryan did such a great job last week of inviting us to, to think through what it means for the fields to be white unto harvest. As we turn to John chapter 4, I think this is on the face of our text again, and we'll kind of pull that out as we go along, but here's our big idea. Jesus causes belief by his word. Jesus creates belief in us by speaking his word. And that's what we'll see this morning is that Jesus runs into a character who at first doesn't uh, seem to have belief, but then through the circumstances presented, he is invited to this belief in his household as well. So here's our big idea, or our outline this morning is verses 43 through 50. We're going to see that Jesus promises life to this official. And then finally, the official's son is healed in verses 51 through 54. It's a simple outline for us this morning, but I think we'll have lots to talk about here. I want to talk first. I want to dive into our text in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 50. I'm going to read 43 through 45 first. Join with me in John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days, he, that's Jesus, departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too 
had gone to the feast. This seems like a little parenthesis in the gospel here this morning. We kind of wonder why these verses might be here. In fact, they kind of uh, preclude our text this morning. What is John trying to invite us to? See, the Jesus movements are recorded, but these movements also tell us something about the context in which Jesus is speaking. See, Jesus is going to a dishonoring place. Verse 43 tells us that he's going to Galilee, and then verse 44 tells us that he's without honor in his hometown. See, we reminded that last week, Ryan told us that Jesus was in Samaria, and he meets this woman at a well, and first she perceives that Jesus is a prophet in, in verse 19, then she wonders if he's the Christ in verse 29, and finally, by the close of the chapter, Jesus is inviting others to come, or excuse me, the woman is inviting others to come and see Jesus, and as Jesus stays a few days, it's not just the woman who believes, it's the entire town of Sychar comes to faith in Jesus Christ, according to verse 41. And it all kind of culminates to verse 42, where where the text says this, it's no longer because of what you said. These are the the townspeople, and they're speaking to the woman. It's no longer because of what you said, this woman at the well, that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. He's not just the Savior of the Nicodemuses, and he's not just the Savior of the Samaritan woman. He's not just the Savior of this people or that people. He's the Savior of all people. And these kind of Jewish half-breed people are recognizing who Jesus is. But now Jesus comes back to his hometown, to this area, Galilee. Uh, It's the word Patris. It's this kind of idea of he's coming back to his own. And verse 44 describes that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet was without honor, uh, has no honor in his own hometown. But what's weird is that in verse 45, the Galileans, that's his hometown crowd, right? He comes back home and they welcome him. So what's John talking about here? Well, look at how they welcome him or why they welcome him. He says, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. See, they welcomed him because of his miracles and signs. And this isn't the honor that Jesus was thought was right and good and sufficient. Remember, this isn't the first time that Jesus has, or that John has been kind of negative about the Israelites' belief. We go back to John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. Uh, John has this statement, kind of this aside that he makes, and he says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So, Jesus is doing these signs in Jerusalem, and he's performing these things, and he's doing these things, and many are coming to believe in him. But look at what John says next. He says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself or believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them. The word actually is the same word as what was used in the verse before. He doesn't believe in them because he knew all the people. See, they were believing in Jesus because of the signs But Jesus wasn't necessarily believing in them. And so in verses 46 through 47, as our uh, story kind of progresses, we see Jesus' situation. Look at verse 46. So he came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus comes back to 
Cana. And this is interesting because this is where this whole section in John chapter 2 through John chapter 4, this Cana cycle that we've been talking about, this is where it began. Jesus goes into Cana and he is at a wedding feast and his mother's asking him to do something about this wine problem that they have. And so sure enough, Jesus turns water into wine. And we talked about the meaning behind that a few weeks ago. This is where Jesus returns to. And what happens then in verse 46 is not in Cana, but in another city named Capernaum, there is an official whose son is sick. In fact, verse 47 says that he's sick unto death. We might stop and ask, what's an official, right? Does he wear like black and white stripes and he throws a flag at anybody who breaks the rules? Like, what's going on here? That was a really dumb joke. This was someone who worked as an assistant to some kind of Roman authority, right? Uh, This person could be a Jew or a Gentile. We don't really know. The point of the text is, is this person was a powerful person and he rubbed shoulders with powerful people. But it also tells us that this man was a desperate person. And so verses 46, 47 tell us that this man's son was ill. His son was ill to the point of death. And so what happens in verse 47 is this official is asking Jesus to come down and heal his son. Notice he says, come down. You're saying, what? Is he short? What's going on? It has to do with elevation. The town of Cana was higher in elevation than Capernaum. So he's just saying, come on down to the seaside. Uh, uh, The Sea of Galilee was some 700 feet below sea level. So he's just saying, come on down. Come down to my house. Come see my son. Come heal my son. My son is going to die. I need you to come down. Notice Jesus' words in verses 48 through 50. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Notice Jesus speaks first, doesn't he? He says this, he says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And it's important for us to recognize this morning that the you in that statement is not just a singular you. He's not telling this official, you're not going to believe unless you see sign and wonders. It's an all-inclusive plural. And he's speaking to all of Israel. He's saying, you all won't believe unless you see signs and wonders, right? But Jesus is right. This man wouldn't believe until he saw a sign. The official and Jesus are kind of seeking two different things, right? As Jesus makes this statement, it it shows that these two are at odds, that this man wants the healing of his son to happen, and Jesus wants this man to have faith in him. And so Jesus is then going to leverage his divinity, to leverage this man's situation, to kind of bring about faith and healing for this man and his son. And so the official pleads in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. We can sense the the urgency of this request. His child's life kind of hangs in the balance. And so Jesus responds in verse 50, and he says, "Uh, your son will live. And notice up to this point, everything in our text has described uh, this son by the word death. Verse 47, he was at the point of death. Verse 50, come down before my child dies. But now, after Jesus' promise, only the word life will be used in regard to this young man. The son will recover in verse 51. 
your son will live. It's used twice in verse 50 and verse 53. See, what happens is that this official then, he hears this word from Jesus and he believes initially, doesn't he? Right? That's what the text tells us in verse 50. Uh, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed. And so he went away. He turns on his heels and he goes away. See, just as Galilee believed in verse 45 and people believed in Jesus because of the signs in chapter 2, now this man also is kind of, quote, unquote, believing. But we know that something is there. After all, he leaves Jesus without getting exactly what he wants. Something's happening. Something's stirring in his heart and in his mind. See, we're reminded this morning as we kind of look at this section of text that seeing and believing are two different things, aren't they? We run in a world that seeing is believing, isn't it? We see the images that come from Ukraine. We see the images that come to us and we say, that's it. That's what's happening. Seeing is believing. When we see things happen, we, we are invited to believe in them. But in, in the spiritual world, seeing and believing are two different things. You might wonder about this issue of signs that are happening. See, Jesus notes that Israel's faith rests on signs. That's what he says in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. They, their faith was contingent upon the continual effort or offering of signs by Jesus. So Jesus turns water into wine. And in the very next account, he's flipping over tables in the temple, and they're saying, what sign do you give to us? In John chapter 6, he uh, feeds 5,000 people. He crosses the lake on his feet. And the next words out of the Jews' mouths are, what sign do you give to us? See, there is this orientation to signs. Well, how do we understand what this issue of signs is? See, throughout the Bible, God used signs as a confirmation of what he had just spoken to his people. God was confirming his words by performing something miraculous, suspending the nature and order of our reality. So in... Uh, Genesis chapter 9, God made this covenant with Noah, and so in and kind of uh, saying that this covenant was true, he gave him a sign by hanging a rainbow in the clouds. When he calls Moses back to go back to Egypt, he gave him signs that his uh, staff would turn into a snake, that his hand would become leprous and then not leprous when he stuck it inside his clo cloak, so that he had a sign by which he would believe and by which the Israelites would believe him. Moses, when he was speaking to Pharaoh, uh, he used signs. We call them plagues. He was using these signs to bring about uh, hardness of heart of Pharaoh, that they would see those things and yet not believe. And God proved himself to kings and prophets throughout the, the Old history, Old Testament history and through the minor prophets and the major prophets through giving prophets signs that they accomplished that would validate their word. And, of course, there were exceptions, too, in Deuteronomy 13, um, God describes a time when uh, the Israelites might see a sign and that person might then call them to worship other idols. And he would say, no, no, if anyone calls you to worship an idol, that sign is not valid. You cannot worship these other idols. That's not what I'm doing. So he's saying these signs and the message of the prophet should validate the words of God. The signs themselves aren't the things to be believed. The words themselves were. See, the signs couldn't be believed themselves, they must be in accord with the other words of God. 
So God's way in the Old Testament was to give his word and then affirm it with a sign. So as an illustration of this, last night I am working on the sermon. I have my laptop open. My son is on Facebook Messenger somewhere else with his friends in the house. And Owen is texting me, asking for something, asking permission for something. And on the other end of this line is my eight-year-old son and myself, who can see the texts that are happening. I thought, this could be interesting to see what goes on. But I had to validate my response by showing Owen that I was the one who had the authority beyond that of an eight-year-old, right? I had to respond and say, yes, you can do this, and, you know, pi is 3.14 or whatever else, right? I had to prove that I wasn't an eight-year-old. Well, this is what God is doing through signs and wonders. He's confirming that he has the power and authority to bear the truth of this message, that this thing is real and right and can be trusted. But what happens as Israel kind of goes on, by the time Jesus comes, Israel has become dependent upon these signs and wonders. We have this statement from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, and he says, Jews seek signs. Jews demand signs. That is when Jesus showed up speaking the words of God and validating it with the signs of God. These sinful men and women only wanted signs and more signs. So that now Jesus sees the signs themselves as an obstacle to their faith. We do this too, don't we? We might not demand God, you know, heal our kids or or demand that he turn a staff into a snake or uh, do away with leprosy or some of the things from the Old Testament. But we, we do the same thing. See, too many Christians will dismiss the words of God for the acts of God. We'll kind of say, yeah, I'm not about the words of God. I'm not about the Bible. I'm not about theology. I'm not about all those things. I'm about just being with God. I'm about being about the acts of God. I hear hear people say this all the time. I'm not really a theology kind of person. I don't care about the words of God. I think Christianity is about relationship, and truly it is. But imagine, if you will, a husband and wife separated by business. The husband's off somewhere for months at a time. And the husband is writing letters to his wife and sending them back. And when he comes home, he mentions something that he wrote in the letter. And the wife says, no, 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 I'm more about relationship. I didn't read your letters. She's not about the relationship at all, is she? Another friend that described that his relationship with God was one that was facilitated through nature which is great. You know, Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. Skies proclaim the work of his hands. And he would say things. He would say, you know, God's closest to me when I'm out on the boat fishing. That's when I feel closest to God. He said, near stinky, smelly fish. Forgive me if you're a fisherman. That's where we do church, he would say. Me and my son out on the fishing boat. Like I said, we affirm Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, skies proclaim the work of his hands. But Psalm 19 goes on and it says that uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That the psalmist gives preference to the words that come from God's mouth over and above his actions in creation. That you and I should long for and 
pine for the words of God coming to us, speaking to us, enlivening us. See, we weren't meant only to know God through his creation. We weren't only to know God through this kind of vague sense of relationship. We were meant to know God through what he speaks to us, what he tells us about himself. See, friends, if if we prefer the signs of God to the words of God, we're missing something. Jesus is trying to show this official that the signs are meant to point to a deeper reality. Namely, Jesus himself, who's right there in his presence. I mean, isn't it a strange thing that this man approaches Jesus like he's some kind of medical doctor? My son's sick. He's got his myopic view just on this one issue. But verses 51 through 54 show us how the words of Christ take effect. And as we kind of turn our attention to these last half of this Uh, these section of verses in verses 51 through 54, we see that the official son is healed, but that the father also receives a kind of healing, doesn't he? Look at verse 51 with me. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, it's about 1 p.m., the fever left him. The father knew That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. See, the official connects with this servant. He's coming back, coming down from Cana to Capernaum, and these servants kind of catch him along the way, right? And as he's walking, they they come and they tell him that his son has been healed. And so the official, in verse 52, just having the wherewithal to ask, asks when this happened. And he said, sure enough, it was about the exact same time that Jesus had proclaimed his words in verse 50, that his son would live. Now notice how verse 53 just slows down. It's like the rhythm of the passage just kind of pauses for a second. And John writes this, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. We might say, well, well, yeah, of course he believed. We saw that in verse 50. He believed. That's why he left. He believed Jesus would heal him, right? And so this official kind of leaves the presence of Jesus. He was believing then, and yeah. But this is different, isn't it? Well, first of all, we recognize this is a new statement of belief because it's not just the official who believes. It's his household that believes. But John also tells us, he seems to be telling us, that there's a a difference between the official's belief in verse 50 and the official's belief in verse 53. By the way, this is what we saw last week when these men of Sychar in chapter 4, verse 42, they come back and they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. That was one level of belief. For we have heard for ourselves. And now we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There's a a new level to their belief. There's a new level to their trust. Again, the men of Sychar believed what the woman said, but really believed when they met Jesus themselves. Isn't this what we saw in John chapter 2? Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. So we stop and we say, what's the difference? What is John kind of drawing out in our attention in verses 50 and 53? What is he trying to highlight for us? It's interesting to note uh, the titles that this man has. In verse 50, or 46 and 49, he's called an official. 
In verse 50, he's called a man. And by the time we get to verse 53, he's father. Kind of a weird thing, isn't it? The text moves our character further and further away from his competency. He started off as an official, and then he became a man, and then he becomes a father, and it moves him closer and closer to his point of need, doesn't it? The official doesn't need much. He just needs to demand Jesus to come down and heal his son. But as a man, he knows he can't do anything. And as a father, he's desperate. See, the words of Jesus have finally found root in this official. This official, with all of his energy in verse 50, hears the words of Jesus, but he's not transformed by them. And then he sees the sign. He sees that the words that went out from Christ's mouth have changed the situation. And now, here in verse 53, the sign is performed, and the words of Christ are trusted, and true belief is spawned in this man and in his household. By the way, this is what we see in other places in the Bible, right? Isn't that what Romans 10 happens to say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. This man hears the words of Christ, believes, and is invited into real true belief when he sees the signs. Truthfully, there's no faith without Jesus' words. passage close itself out in verse 54, where John kind of gives a comment. He says that this is the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. And you might say, well, what's the first sign? Well, the first sign is the creating, the turning of water to wine. And John enumerated that in John chapter 2, verse 11. He told us that this was the first sign that Jesus performed. And it's tied to this kind of rhythm that's happening in all of John 2 through 4, where people are seeing signs, miraculous things. They're not believing or not believing as Jesus would have them believe. I might step back for a moment and say, how are we to understand this text? How are we to understand this passage as a whole? What are we to make of these verses? And more specifically, what are we supposed to do in response? You know, we have this story about Jesus healing someone with, with just his words. How are we supposed to make sense of this in a way that has bearing on our life? The truth is, this morning, Christian, that Jesus' words bring life, don't they? Jesus' words bring life. If we were to kind of fast forward in our time in John, I want to bring this text up before you in John chapter 12, verse 40. And this is a quotation from Isaiah. We'll see this some months from now. What is it, like three years from now or something, right? This is a quotation from, from Isaiah. It says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus, or John is describing this uh, season of miracles that Jesus has performed, seven of them throughout chapters 1 through 11 of the book of John. And in culmination, John kind of looks back and he quotes Isaiah and he's saying, they see all of these things, but they're not understanding them. They're not seeing Jesus for what he is. They blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, and if they were to see with their eyes, if they were to turn and understand with their heart, then he would bring healing. He would bring restoration and renewal, but that's not happening because they just have been blinded, right? 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We saw in John chapter 3 that men loved darkness so they can't see the glories of Jesus. In John chapter 5, we'll see that we love respect and honor from one another so we can't see Jesus. What we need right now is an overhaul. We need a complete transformation in our spirit, in our person, because we will not see the glories of Christ ourselves. And what happens then is that as Jesus speaks his words, it breaks the sin-hardened heart. It cracks the stone inside of our chests. And it takes it out and it replaces it with a heart of flesh, right? So Jesus' words bring life, just like this passage describes this morning. Jesus' words are powerful for belief. Remember, it was Jesus that worked this miracle. He worked it from a distance. Jesus spoke healing for this young child. And notice there was no like doctor's exam that was happening here for Jesus. Jesus doesn't travel down to Capernaum. He doesn't investigate the child, have him, uh, you know, do the duck walk and all kinds of other stuff, right? He doesn't ask questions of the official even. Jesus speaks these powerful words from a distance, and it's just like it it rolls off his tongue and creation just bows to the order of Jesus' mouth. It reminds us of Jesus' powerful word. Such that Jesus' words overcome distance and disease. And they undermine the faithless nature of these Israelites, doesn't it? So Jesus' words are powerful to bring belief. But Jesus' words are powerful to bring life. It was the words of Jesus that changed changed the trajectory of this child. He was ill to the point of death. And the official demands that Jesus come down before his son dies. But as at that hour, when Jesus says he will live, his recovery begins, right? It's worth noting here this morning that this gospel started off with these words. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, Jesus, went out from the presence of God and faithfully proclaimed his word time and time again. And it was that word that has been rejected time and time again. Israel rejected it when God spoke to the prophets. Israel rejected it when he spoke his law. And now they're going to reject his own son, the word of God, who had been with God and come from God. But this is the beauty. In this rejection of the word of God, the word is accomplishing its purpose. When the word was rejected, it did exactly what God wanted it to do. See, that word would be rejected and rejected and rejected until finally they would take it to a hill outside of Jerusalem. They would nail him to a cross. They would lift him up and mock him and spit at him, and he would die a sinner's death, your death and my death that we deserved in our sinful rebellion. He would go into a tomb, and three days later, he would rise victorious because the word accomplished exactly what he intended. Amen? God's word does not return void. It always accomplishes that which it purposes. Isaiah 55 is true about Jesus, just as much about these Bible words. See, in this way, God's word, Jesus, does not return void. 
Though rejected, he would be exalted. And though put to death, he would bring life. Jesus' words are powerful for belief. And they're powerful for life. See, Christian, you and I cannot share the hope of God without the words of Christ. We can't do it. Too many times I see trajectories and places in, in Christendom or in churches where people are trying to make Christianity more palatable for people who don't believe. And, and they're kind of sucking the marrow out of Christian faith, aren't they? They're taking away the words of Christ and still trying to bring about conversion, and it doesn't work. Let me give you an example of this. When I was working with a youth group before someplace in my life, I found out that a, a kid was really struggling. And he, here's a person who's a senior in high school. He had been into some things he shouldn't have been into. And I sat down with him for lunch. And my plan was to sit down with him and say, are you really doing these things? And he's going to say yes. And I'm going to say, is that the purpose you want to attach yourself to? So that's exactly what I did. We, we talked about it. He was doing some things he shouldn't have been doing. And I said, but what about your purpose? You don't have any purpose in life. Because I had been trained somewhere in the past that that's what you do. And he looked back at me and he said, I've got more money. I've got more friends. And I'm having more fun than I've ever had in my life. What are you talking about purpose? He was right wasn't he? His sinful heart just wanted those things. He was getting everything he desired. He had no radar for the things of Christ. He had no radar for these spiritually oriented things. He just wanted to have fun. He wanted to have money. He wanted to have girls, and that's what he had. See what I did? I turned the life-giving promise of God into a self-help message. I took Jesus and his message of the glorious gospel that he has provided, and I smashed it together with a Tony Robbins talk. And the guy looked back at me with the most honest reaction that I can remember and say, this is stupid. See, when we wander from the words of God, we distort the words of God. Isn't that what happened to Eve? Eve heard a command from God, right? You should not eat of any tree of the fruit of knowledge. But when she is asked by Satan, she says, we shouldn't eat it or even touch it, right? That's what we do. We kind of just distort things, and we make it kind of look a little bit more like us. And so what we, when we give hope to others, when we present the, the glories of Christ to others, the thing we should try to do is just really root it in the words of God that what he said about himself. See, if God's words are powerful for belief and powerful for life, what else do we need to talk about? Sometimes I wonder if, if there's just this pressure to seem logical, to make ourselves seem respectable in the eyes of the world. But the truth is that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This morning, we recognize that witnesses are word-rooted people. We're to be witnesses to a dying, lost world. We've got to be word-rooted people. We've got to bear witness to something other than ourselves. 
Paul tells us that we should let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. 1 Peter 3 says that uh, we should always uh, be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us. So the question for us this morning is if we go to Wendy's this afternoon or this evening and somebody approaches us and they say, "Uh, what must I do to be saved? Do we know how to respond? Outside of pray the prayer, go to church, do we know? See, witnesses are word-oriented, word-rooted people. I want to take these last few minutes and just, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> first of all, swallow without dying. Second of all, um, talk through some basic rhythms of a word-based witness. How do we give testimony about the glories of Christ without tainting and, and twisting it because of our own sin? Are four things. Read the word, think the word, pray the word, speak the word. Let's read the word. Let me just ask you, do you consistently read the word of God for yourself? Does it impact your life? Now, I can't always say and claim that my rhythms in, in the text and in, in Bible study are always where they should be. But Christians should have a regular understanding, a regular rhythm of understanding God's word and reading it for themselves. Is that you? Are you one who cuts aside time to make time to read the scriptures? David Mathis describes that there's difference between kind of digging and combing, right? We might go through the scriptures and we know that... sitting. You might read the book of Numbers anyway, right? And you're not trying to dig in. You're just trying to comb over the book and understand what it's about. There's other times, though, like in our our passage in Colossians 1 this morning, where we might just dig down and try to understand it for ourselves so that the Word of God can penetrate us, right? We, We should be people who read and intake the Word of God. The second thing we should do is think the word. You say, how do I think the word? Well, I'm talking about scripture memory. We should uh, actually take aside time to memorize the scriptures and plant them in our mind, right? This is Psalm 119 tells us that he's hidden his word in his heart that he might not sin against God. We want to think God's thoughts as he thinks them. We do that by scripture memory. We pray the word. Have you ever sat down to pray through a psalm or a passage? Have you ever taken the time to actually pray back God's words to him? God tells us that whatever we ask in his will, he'll answer. When we pray the scriptures, that is definitely of his will. We saw a a beautiful example of a scriptural prayer in Philippians chapter 1 about six months ago, where Paul says that he, he prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all wisdom so that they might approve what's excellent so that uh, they can be filled with the fruit of righteousness at Jesus' coming. That's a great prayer for us to pray, right? And you see, all three of those things are preparatory work. If we read the word and we think the word and we pray the word, it prepares us to be in season, as it were. Like 1 Peter 3 tells us to be, to be able to defend the hope that we have within us. We are people made alive by the words of Christ. We study the words so that we can give them to someone else. The final thing, 
that we speak the word. We work hard to make this interior life submitted to the words of God, vocalized to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. Not with arrogance and bravado. You ever hear somebody like that that uses the words of God like a sledgehammer? It's not what we want to do. Like a surgeon, we want to use the scriptures like a scalpel and make the incisions where they're necessary to bring about healing in our friends and our neighbors and our relatives. We've, we want to be gentle with the scriptures and loving and kind. And we're going to point out sin and we're going to call things wrong when they're wrong, but we're going to remain by their side and we're going to help them, right? See, we do this with humility. We, we say things like, you know, God has to continually show me who he is. Or we say things like, one of the things that God's teaching me is this. Or, or I love this passage because it really spoke to me. We have this air of humility that we ourselves aren't a finished product, that we still need the grace of God in our lives, don't we? So we read the word, we think the word, we pray the word, and we speak the word. Notice that when this man has this life-altering instance with Jesus. It's not just him. It's his household comes to faith. It's his children, his slaves, his whoever else is there. In closing this morning, I love the story of R.C. Sproul's confession. R.C. Sproul told the story of how he was converted. His conversion, he was uh, out and about on a Friday night, and uh, sure enough, he needed a pack of cigarettes. Now, for those of you who are too young to remember this, this is hard to imagine, but they used to sell cigarettes out of vending machines. Yes, that happened. And so he goes to this vending machine, and he sees someone that he was on the football team with, and he starts striking up a conversation. And this friend opens up the scriptures to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 3, and this is what that passage says. Now, just imagine this conversation. This is what this brother shares with R.C. Sproul. It says, if a tree falls... Whether it falls to the north or to the south, wherever it falls, there it shall lie. Okay. That's one way of doing it, right? Listen to what Sproul says about this years later. He says, that was me. I, I was that tree. I was fallen dead and rotting, just lying there on the ground. That's, that's who I was. The Spirit just... It brings this application of this verse to R.C. Sproul's heart and to his mind, and the words of God are doing the work of God for the purpose of God, and God raises up one of his most faithful servants in the last 50 years. See, God saved R.C. Sproul through Ecclesiastes 12, verse 3. The word of God bore the fruit that he had planned since the foundations of the earth. So this morning, I want to pray. I want to pray that we are those who are enamored with the words of God and speak the words of God to see the purpose of God. Let's be those kinds of people, huh? By God's grace and by his mercy. Let's pray to that end. Father, we ask that you would bring that about for your honor and glory. That you would make us enamored with your words that you would make us fall in love with the beauty of your scriptures, that we would long to hear from you 
And that as we come enamored with your word, that you would allow us to speak those words, not just to others outside of the faith, but to those within this body, that we would speak your words with love and care. And because of that, we would see your purpose in the world. We would see you draw men and women to the faith. We would see you encourage and sharpen our brothers and sisters, that you would receive all honor and glory in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.